You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Natalitsky, and today I'm excited to welcome Beth Blackwood. Beth has been the CEO of AHESA, the Association of Heads of Independent Schools of Australia, since 2016. Prior to this, she had a 30-year career in the education sector as a teacher, deputy principal, and principal of various schools throughout Australia. In fact, when I became a teacher, she was my first principal and she appointed me to my first ever leadership position in a school. Beth is on the boards of AITSL, the Australian Institute for Teaching, Learning and School Leadership, and the Australian Council on Children and the Media. She served previously as President and Executive Board Member of the Alliance of All Girls Schools Australasia. This year, she was recognised in the prestigious 2022 Queen's Birthday Honours List for significant service to secondary education and to youth. Welcome, Beth. Thank you, Deborah. Let's start the conversation. Before you were at AHESA, you were principal of PLC in Perth for 18 years, and in your current work, you work with a lot of principals in your role as CEO of AHESA. So I'm wondering about what your observations are about the nature of school leadership and principals' work, and maybe how that's changed over recent years or even decades. There is no doubt in my mind that uh, the the role of uh, school leadership today is far more complex than it was even 10 years ago, let alone 30 years ago, when I stepped into to education. I'm, I'm speaking within the context of, of independent schools, but there are more commonalities between independent and government school leaderships than there are differences. So if we look at students and, and education of students, we've seen a marked shift from one size fits all to to differentiation. And the the challenge for teachers of knowing every student in their classroom and tailoring the education to ensure that every student in their class is thriving and learning. So in terms of curriculum development and in terms of meeting the needs of individuals, it is a much more complex environment than in the past. There is a greater emphasis today on evidence-based learning. What does the research tell us? What works? What doesn't work? I think uh, 20 years ago, there was an assumption about what worked, what didn't work. And uh, much of the research is telling us that some of those assumptions were based on fairly shaky ground. There is that drive now to, to be familiar with data, to understand the context in which you're working, to understand what research is is telling us, tailoring our teaching and learning to what we know works. The flip side of that, of course, is there also is a drive for innovation because if we do what we have always done, then we're going to get what we've always got. While we do have that focus on research and what works, we also need to be pushing the barriers in terms of innovation and trialling new things in our schools and following it through with the research that will tell us whether those innovations are to the advantage of students or not. So that's a very different scenario from in the past. Risk assessment in our schools today is far more complex than, than it once was. 
independent schools have always talked about holistic education, that there is a far greater emphasis today on on well-being, not just the well-being of our students, but the well-being of our staff, and might I add, the well-being of leaders. They tend to be the last ones to look after their own well-being. So uh, there there is a need for us to be, as leaders, to to be very aware, not only of what we're modelling, but very aware of our own physical and, and mental well-being, it's so important for sustainability uh, in in our roles as leaders in schools. So that just a few examples of how complex the educational environment and hence leadership has become in in school communities. Yes, so much in there about complexity and maybe even expectations, if I think about what you were talking about with um, the expectations around evidence, risk, data, And even that differentiation piece where the real knowing and addressing the needs of every single person in your community, that there's so much more that's expected maybe of leaders. But maybe if you can talk a bit bit more about that wellbeing piece that you came to at the end, because health and wellbeing, as you say, of everyone in, in a community, in society, but in a school, in the whole community, seems to be coming more and more to the fore as an issue that is of significance that needs to be addressed. So leaders need to be role models and that that's something we need to be thinking about more and more. But I'm wondering what are the kinds of things we need to pay attention to or are there really good examples of this happening or, you know, what are the the things that are getting in people's way? What are your observations around that wellbeing piece? Again, here comes that word complex. There are complex factors that have led to, to our current situation and there are the three layers of, of students, of staff and of leaders. When it comes to our students, we were talking 20 years ago about an epidemic of of depression. So mental health and well-being has been a concern that has been present and with us for a lengthy period of time. COVID has undoubtedly exacerbated that situation and put health well-being well and truly in, in the spotlight. Every school has always been concerned about the well-being of students, but the reality is unless students are well, both physically and mentally, they're not going to learn. So really, to me, it's the one of the basics. We might talk about literacy and numeracy, but we also need to talk about well-being because unless we have well-being, our students are not going to be able to focus and they're not going to be able to learn in class. What have we learned? Uh, we learned. Uh, I think we've learned that uh, well-being needs to be embedded in the culture of the school. It starts from kindergarten and moves right through to year twelve. There are a whole range of well-researched, well-documented programs that are tailored for the different stages of development of well-being with with students. I think the challenge comes with teachers who, till now, have really had and I'm. I'm speaking particularly secondary school teachers, but they've had that narrow focus of their discipline, not necessarily the well-being of students in in their classrooms. So it's another layer for them to understand, to be able to identify and to be able to refer and seek assistance when it is needed. So we have another layer of professional learning that's required for for our teaching workforce to be able to support well-being. Then we have well-being of staff and that you know that is a greater greater challenge at this point in time. We know that uh, our teaching staff are at that point of fatigue, 
having risen magnificently to the challenge of educating mm. young people through through COVID. Uh, but undoubtedly, that, that weariness and fatigue has, has set in. And, and so we have that to consider in terms of us requiring more and more of them. Something needs to give in the teaching workforce. We need to look at the way that we structure the workload for teachers um, and uh, how we can support them to have the skills that, that they need, but to be also able to balance the competing demands that, that are placed on them as teachers of young people. It's an issue that governments are grappling with at the moment. It's an issue we're grappling with in, in schools ourselves. The, the period of COVID again, which catapulted us to using technology, has opened some doors and some opportunities. And I would hope that we can look at refreshing and renewing how we look at the role of, of the teaching profession. You know, for example, can we provide a hybrid working environment for, for teachers? There is a demand in almost every other profession for a hybrid model of working. What does that look like in the teaching workforce? And how might that support some of our teachers to manage the increasing demands and workloads that they're faced with? So there are opportunities and, and I would hope that over you know, the next few years we, we take some of those experiences that we've learned from COVID and we use them to be able to give teachers greater satisfaction in their roles and more flexibility as well. That word complexity keeps coming up but because what you're talking about is adding of layers and adding of complexity and then not necessarily anything coming away. So the complexity of teaching and then also of leading in schools and of serving the young people in schools becomes more complex mm. uh, but wellbeing mm. becomes more and more of an issue. I've also been thinking in my work about what corporate world's doing in terms of workforce hybridity, flexibility, fluidity and addressing the needs of the staff that are in the workforce and that become, that seems quite difficult in schools because of the way in which schools have tended to work, although some schools are doing some interesting things about late starts, flexible days, job shares, thinking about the ways in which the teaching workforce, as you say, might be able to think more creatively about how it is being a place of employment because I think uh, one of the mm. things that's also coming up in the media and around the place is that attraction, retention and recruitment of staff at all levels in schools, teachers, leaders, how do we make education in schools an attractive workplace for people? It is it is a critical issue, well, especially in an environment where there, there's a high demand for employment in almost every profession. So there are other alternatives to, to a teaching profession. So we do need to look at how can we make the, the profession of teaching attractive. How can we build in hybrid models, flexible models? Uh, we, we're still working with an industrial model of education and, uh, you know, there are difficult industrial issues here to navigate. We do need to look at other possible ways of making teaching an, an attractive and a sustainable career. And there's some interesting assumptions around the teaching workforce because I think there are some assumptions that it's a, a calling and a vocation rather than a job and so therefore there should that people should be happy to just be, you know, giving until they burn out as opposed to, as you're saying now, what, what does it mean for it to be sustainable so that people can fit their own oxygen masks as well as help and serve others uh, and sustain that over a long period of time? Mm. 
are you seeing anything particular in heads of schools, school leaders and the ways in which they are either navigating or struggling to navigate their own well-being or the well-being of their communities? Struggling to maintain their own well-being is 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 a factor. I'm hoping that as as we emerge from the COVID era that the current fatigue factor, which has impacted leaders as much as it has teachers in our workforce, um, will, will ease somewhat. There's a body of research now that tells us about health and, and well-being of principals. I think one of the positive outcomes of, of COVID was that it created a greater need for connectivity between heads and so in many of the states, um, we, we were seeing hubs of school leaders who, who were connecting online on a regular basis and sharing their experiences and being supportive and being encouraging of each other. We would like to see that continue. I think that collegiality, that being able to share your experience with somebody who walks in similar shoes or in in the same role as yourself is incredibly important in terms of supporting and uh, su- sustaining leadership. So we've seen some positive trends in that direction as a result of COVID that we hope to be able to maintain the, the momentum. Uh, from an independent school sector, we've, we've looked at what advice that, that we can provide, the governing boards, in terms of supporting the leaders in their their schools. And a number of of heads have suggested a model that is uh, familiar to psychologists in in their schools where they have a counsellor that they can discuss the issues that they've been dealing with on a, on a regular basis. It's not quite a mentor, but it but it is a companion who walks a journey with you, but who is a sounding board for you on a regular basis. Sometimes just to debrief some of the issues that that uh, our leaders are dealing with uh, in schools and to support their own emotional well-being. So there there are a range of initiatives that have been introduced uh, and will continue to, to be, I think, supported by uh, governing bodies within schools to in turn support the leaders within schools. Even thinking about what we mean by wellbeing, we know it's an issue, we know it's a problem, but what does that mean? And the things you're talking about are connectedness to others and having a confidential space and safe space in which to talk about the work that you're doing. Uh, mm. Because I think sometimes wellbeing gets put back onto the individual, which absolutely it partly is individual responsibility and perhaps permission to make some space in your own life for those things that nourish you or allow you space to recover from uh, work. But there's also, I think the interesting thing that you're talking about is what are organisations and others doing to to support and what does wellbeing mean and look like really apart from 10 minutes of meditation in the morning or uh, <laughs> making sure that you get a walk along the beach in the week, you know, like those, mm. those kind of things are one thing. But but I think we need to think more broadly about what it means to be well and what it is that helps us to be well, especially when you're in a role, whether a teacher or a school leader, that has significant potentially emotional and cognitive impacts on you on a daily mm. basis. You know, for example, some of the research is telling us to have a passion outside your professional field is is helpful. 
It allows you to step outside your role. It allows you to uh, to mix with a, a different community, but pursue your interests, be it in you know in a creative endeavor or an academic endeavor. But to have an interest other than that of school leadership uh, is is a much healthier balance than being just totally consumed by your your own school community and school leadership. So it's encouraging people to see that taking time out is not to the detriment of their role, but but in in fact, it is supportive of their role, particularly in terms of of sustainability. So it it is looking at what research is telling us, supporting leaders, and the same for the teaching communities, supporting them and giving them licence to take time out to do those things that do nourish and sustain them outside of their professional roles. And that notion of sustainability and and being sustained uh, is a great one. And I'm just reflecting on a couple of the things, not necessarily that I do outside of of my work, but that sometimes help me to find that space. Uh, On the weekend, I went on a high ropes course and zip lining with my children. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not something I intend to do on a regular basis. But (laughs) what it did do was the same as when they get me to go and do laser tag with them is that you can only concentrate on what you're doing in that moment. Mm. You can't be thinking about what's happened in the past or what's coming up in the week or what might be in your email inbox. You can only be one foot in front of the other or zipping through the air. So those things where you also give yourself permission to escape even just the kind of the emotional or cognitive load of the work as well. Mm, I agree. And and if there's an element of thrill in it, even better. <laughs> a little too much thrill for me at, <laughs> at times, I think, um, in this particular experience. But are there things across your career, whether as a principal or in your work at, at AHESA, that have sustained you that, or practices that you've embedded in your own life to help you with that? I've got better at it. <laughs> Um, and, and uh, you know, I did have a wake-up call very early in, in my career health-wise where um, I had to stop and think, if I am going to sustain this role, I need to take some steps to manage my well-being. And one of, one of those was meditation, but the other was engaging in, in physical activity. So I took up rowing and I also took up bushwalking and that still is a real interest of mine to be able to take a week out and walk or even a a weekend to walk, to be in nature, to enjoy the surroundings around me, to not have to think about anything but putting the next step, you know, one step in front of the other has, has been part of that balance and sustainability for me. There are obviously other aspects too. I'm, I'm a history buff and I love reading so I've always found time or I've ensured I've, I've found time for reading for, for pleasure um, outside of work as well. And I'm just thinking back to when you were talking about COVID, which has been such a big part of our lives and our work and the thinking that we've done around work and school and education in the last couple of years. And you talked about some of the opportunities around technologies and connectedness and those kinds of things. Do you think that people have changed their view on what leading or leadership looks like during COVID or has it needed to be different at different times or are there other things that we've learned about leading during the pandemic, do you think? I think there have been some lessons about about leadership. Again, I think the trends were there prior to COVID, but it, uh, COVID has highlighted that schools are communities and 
for the, the, the leaders within the schools um, during COVID, there was a real need to step up in terms of communication, to make decisions and to communicate those decisions um, to, to the school community, to be a presence. And, and I think that uh, in, in doing that and in the work that teachers uh, did during that time uh, across COVID, trust was built in schools as organisations. Uh, we've seen over the last couple of decades an erosion of trust in our society, in politics, in business, just about every aspect of our society, there's been a, a lack of trust. I think one of the things that COVID did was build trust and, and build an understanding of what it means to be part of a community. Schools have always been communities, but I think there is a greater need for communities today and I think schools have replaced the communities that people once belonged to, such as churches or youth organisations. Schools are communities, and I think COVID has highlighted that. And uh, for for the school leaders, it meant having that greater presence, not necessarily physical presence, more often than not it was online mm. presence, but the communication was regular and uh, the it de- developed trust and respect between the the leader and by and large the parents but also the stakeholders within those communities but also within their local communities because schools needed to work to a, a far greater extent with local health authorities but but also other paraprofessionals to seek the information they needed to provide to their school communities so there was greater connectivity between the schools and their local communities or even their state um, organisations. So I, I, I think that's something that has come from COVID and uh, will, will hopefully continue so that, that uh, there's that trust and uh, leaders um, continue to be, as they always have been, I think, advocating for a life that, that is based on authenticity and, and truthfulness. And uh, I, I think that has come out of what we've been through in the last few years. Mm. I mean, you talk about trust and there's nothing more that you need than, than trust when you're entrusting your young person to a school. Mm-hmm. But I think that also during COVID that the school, sometimes the principal, but the school itself became often that that one source of truth for families about what's happening, what are the rules, what do I need to know, and that communication piece, which is always important, but it was looked at in a different way. And you use the word a couple of times that school leaders or schools were a presence in people's lives and I mm. think a, a a safe and reliable presence and something that, that people not looked forward to necessarily but, but certainly looked out for what's the school telling me um, and what's the communication that's coming from them and I can rely on that. And for, for our teachers and leaders, they were also seeing inside the lives of, of students outside of school. Uh, it was a privileged position to be able to understand the environment in which they, they were working from home, um, you know, the, the, the broader family di- dimensions. Uh, so you know, there, there was that shared understanding that was not possible before COVID. So I, I, I think it was to the benefit of getting to know and understanding students too. But with parents, yes, that engagement 
uh, is one of the positives that has really come out from the research that we've done uh, across that COVID period, uh, even down to parent-teacher nights, which were always so artificially constructed, you know, five minutes, the bell goes, move on to the next teacher, the next teacher. Uh, one of the real positives that came out of it was the flexibility, first of all, that uh, uh, online parent-teacher interviews offered, um, the convenience, too, of not having to make other arrangements for, for your family for an evening to be able to get into school. But, you know, it set up a, a, a relationship with the teacher that seemed to be a less formal environment and one that was probably a more, more trusting, more open um, conversation than uh, what the more formal parent-teacher nights used to offer. So I think it has shifted the relationship. Interesting that on the one hand, being remote helped us to realise the importance of face-to-face community and yet some of those opportunities of being online with one another actually accentuated the humanness of the relationship, whether that was being in each other's homes or whether that, I mean, I'm remembering the parent-teacher nights that I had Mm. and as you say, some parents who were never able to come to the face-to-face ones were able to come to these or there were parents where their child was, you know, sandwiched between them on the sun lounger outside and they were just, it was a a very Mm. different feel for that conversation. Uh, So, Mm. yeah, really some really interesting reflections over the last couple of years. And often, you know, for parents when they need to come into the school, there, there's a genera- there's a generation of parents who, when they went to school, it was very authoritarian, and schools are no longer that. But the parents' memories of school is one of author- authoritative power, and so just walking onto school premises impacts on the relationship between the the teacher and parent. And I think you take that away when when you're online and you're speaking from each other's homes. So. The, that builds confidence and it builds trust as well. Hmm. Absolutely, that people bring their own assumptions and experiences of school to school, don't they? They do indeed. (laughs) One thing that I note in your work over years, I mean partly principal of PLC and partly some of the advocacy that you do, is an interest in girls' education and women's leadership. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit around why you think that gender piece in education or in leadership might be an important one for us to be thinking about in the field of education? I'm a a child of the feminist movement of the 60s. So uh, women's place in our society has always been been a passion of mine. And if I look back, I don't think we've moved very far at all from where we were in, in the 1960s in terms of women being equal participants in influence and power and in, in our society. Uh, and uh, I, I really believe that we would be a better world for a more equal sharing of decision-making between men and, and women. So I, I, I think gender is an issue in terms of educating to, to give access to the diversity of roles that, that are in our society, but particularly leadership um, and leader, leadership for, for women. I think for men too, there there are gender issues there. They're different issues, but I think there are certainly um, issues for men. I was reading a preview of a book on in this morning that that had a very common theme about men having lost their way at this point in, in, in history and not understanding 
what it means to be masculine in 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 today in today's world and in fact the interesting thing was this book was stating that you know and women are overtaking men in terms of academic outcomes in terms of decision making so my passion has been women but it's not just about women it's it's about both genders and about ensuring that we we celebrate differences as well as commonalities between the genders, but that we're generally educating for for everybody to to take a place in our society and for all to be able to share uh, in in leadership and and decision-making. I've always chosen to work in schools for for girls because I believe that that is a way of being able to address some of those uh, gender imbalances. You know, gender is is an issue for, um, for for us in schools, and now, of course, we've got that that third space as well for those who do not necessarily identify with one gender or another. So, if we're talking about complexity, this world is becoming even even more complex. But my passion has been girl, girls in education. My my passion has been for encouraging girls to step into that leadership space and to be influencers and decision makers. What would you say to those who might be either aspiring to school leadership or maybe wondering what lies behind the curtain of school leadership or maybe or maybe even not sure that they want to aspire to school leadership? <laughs> Any of those kinds of things. Like if you've got people who are aspirant or potentially aspirant, what might be some advice that you would give them? My advice would be to get as much experience as possible in a whole range of domains um, within within a school, not to pigeonhole oneself into being either a curriculum leader or a pastoral care leader uh, or an innovator, but to, to try, put your hand up for involvement and engagement in, in a whole range of, of strategic directions that, that the school, school may be, be taking. I think the second thing is to signal that you have those aspirations. Uh, for too long, we have relied on principals tapping people on the shoulder uh, and saying, I think you should be looking at, at, at leadership. But instead, encouraging people who move into the teaching career to look as, at leadership as, as an option that, that may be of interest. And certainly, there are a whole raft of leadership programs today that uh, were were not available sort of 20, 20 years ago. To look at those master courses, to look at those uh, leadership courses that, that are available and get engaged with them. There are programs where for those who I'm not sure whether this is or isn't what I want to do, there are programs where you can shadow a principal walk in their shoes for a number of days. I think that's a really great opportunity. In the independent sector, we encourage people to uh, talk with their principal about getting involved at the governance level, being on one of the perhaps governance subcommittees so that they can understand uh, what board responsibilities are and how that functions um, within a school. So it's leaning in, it's um, grabbing opportunities, it's um, seeking opportunities uh, as well and getting as broad a range of experience as possible. And today I would encourage people to, to change schools as well so that you get different contexts, different experiences. Whereas, you know, once the model used to be 
stayed in the same school and moved into, you know, the senior roles within those schools. And I, I would now encourage people to, uh, to look outside their own school for other opportunities that are going to stretch and, and grow them professionally to be able to eventually move in, into those leadership roles. We do have concerns about the pipeline for, for leadership. Uh, so I think in every sector, there's a real drive to support um, those who are aspiring to, to, to leadership. I think the other thing we need to, to do better is as principals, tell the story of what a great career it is, how richly rewarding a career as a school leader is. We know from the Occupational Health and Wellbeing Survey that, that on almost every domain, principals exceed other professions in terms of, of workload, in terms of stress factors, but in terms of satisfaction, far outranked other, other careers. And it is, it's one of the most rewarding careers, I think, that uh, you, you could wish for. Every day is different in a school, every day is exciting, and you have this youthful exuberance that takes you along for the ride. So I, I think it's a really exciting profession, and I think we, we need to encourage more principals to tell those, those stories. What, what enriches their lives? What rewards them? Why do they take those roles? And then how much pleasure they get? Sure, there are days when it's really challenging and really difficult. You know, they say it's one of the best jobs in the world with some of the worst imaginable days. But the, the worst imaginable days are far outweighed by that richness and that exuberance of life that you have within your school community. Is there anything that stands out for you as a really fond memory from your time as a principal? Oh, it's always the student engagement. I think if I look back and think, so what sustained me? It was the events that demonstrated the capabilities of the students. So it, it, it might have been music, it might have been drama, it might have been art, it might have been sport, it may have been, you know, it's sort of a, a, academic endeavours, debating. It's the wow factor, it's the awe and wonder of the talents and the abilities of these young people that sustain you. Thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move us to the final five questions which I call the enlightening round. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? People may not know that I lived on a kibbutz in Israel for a while. And uh, the, the reason I, I mention that is that it really influenced me strongly in terms of fu future directions. I think kibbutzes, at least at the time I was uh, living on one, were, were real examples of uh, so socialist um, communities where everyone was equal, everybody shared, everybody su supported each other. So I, my, my passion for community and the importance of them for people to be able to, to thrive and to care uh, and to care for, for each other uh, was, was very much um, consolidated by that time in the kibbutz. The, the other thing that I, that I really learned from the kibbutz was that, that that time children lived in children's houses from six weeks of age. They were in children's houses spending a couple of hours uh, uh, in the evening with, with their parents, but then back in the children's house. And the house was their, their educational unit as well, well as their home. 
and I learned about meeting the needs of individual students in in a a kibbutz children's home. One child who uh, was afraid of afraid of the dark, and they reorganised the whole teaching day, put the children to bed during the day, woke them up at midnight, took them out around the farming community, had an astrologer tell them about the stars, visited the people who worked on the kibbutz in, in roles overnight, you know, the night guards. There was a factory that, that worked throughout the night, uh, what the animals were doing. This was all for one child in this home who was waking up fearful, fearful at night. So that notion of meeting mm. individual needs and that notion of community was so strong um, from that experience of, of, of living in a kibbutz that they, they stayed with me across across the years. Mm. How about something that's currently on your desk? <laughs> if you saw my desk, <laughs> it looks, uh, you know, they say messy desk, messy mind, and perhaps that does, does, does reflect me somewhat. But, but when I thought about that, I thought I have at any one time a number of quotes on my desk, on, on the board behind me. So things that resonate with me, I will pin them up on the board. And uh, one of the latest um, quotes I have was um, from Bryony Scott, who's principal of Winona in uh, in New South Wales. And uh, she wrote an article, and I think it was a speech night speech as well, where she stated, we educate for a purpose, not an ATAR. And I think that just sums up so well what we are seeking to to do in our schools, but the tension that exists within you know the current structure uh, for for education in in Australia and and internationally as well. Mm. Mm. And we're coming back to that first piece that we talked about around complexity and multiple expectations mm. Mm. Uh, on schools for what it is that they provide. That's right. Mm. And who is someone who inspires you in the work that you do? Just about every every principle I know inspires me <laughs> um, and and I have met some remarkable principles uh, 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 along my journey who have been uh, mentors and and guides for me so uh, I do have a, uh, enormous respect for those who are in the in the profession and and for those who who had given time and shared their experience with me for those that, um, uh, of those that I don't know personally, the greater, greatest inspiration has been Sir Ken Robinson. I, I love the challenge that, that he threw out some years ago uh, about giving voice to creativity um, in, in our schools. Uh, and uh, I think that continues to, to be really important. And if anything, that, that, that focus is greater today. Than, than it may have been in the past. So, so Ken Robinson is one is an educator who I have enormous respect for. For those who um, I know more personally, David Loder was my first principal at MLCNQ, and uh, he was an inspiration. He he was somebody who who pushed the barriers, who saw the potential of education to to shape the future. He was visionary. He introduced, the, for example, the first one-to-one um, -one laptop program in the world. He also introduced uh, a residential ex experience um, for uh, year, year nine students, seeing that as we moved more and more towards uh, using technology, we were moving away from 
the social skills that, that were necessary. So this residential experience building on, to, to build on that need for social connection, but also collaboration and, and independence. So, uh, that, they're just two examples, but, but he, he was a visionary and still is a visionary. Um, so he was somebody who did really inspire me. And in fact, I wasn't a teacher at the time. I went on and did education because David Lode pointed the way to a profession that was really exciting, engaging, and potentially uh, a, a powerful way of being able to influence what young people can be and what our future could be. What a, what a sliding doors moment considering the <laughs> legacy that you do have That's of right. being principal for so many years and then now being our CEO of the, the Heads of Independent Schools Association. And I'm, I was thinking PLC Perth under your leadership was one of the first in the country to go one-to-one as well, I think. Well, undoubtedly, that was the influence of David Loder, of being able to see, you know, what, into the future. And so at the end of this year, you're finishing up as the CEO of AHESA. What have you got coming up that you're excited about? Well, I'm excited about two things. One, one is I'm taking a gap year next year. So I will finish with AHESA <laughs> at, at the end of this year. Um, but I'm then going to take a gap year and live in London for six months and indulge in all the things that I enjoy from walking to history to reading and, you know, experiencing what it's like to, to, to live in London. I lived there in my youth, so now I'm going to see what it's like to live there as a, as a senior citizen. So, so that's something that is exciting to look forward to. But, but beyond that, um, I'm hoping that um, I can continue to, to contribute to, to education. There's a number, a number of fields that I'm passionate about, women in education, education for uh, in Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders, um, and migrants to, to Australia. So I'd like to get involved in one or all, all of those areas. Uh, I have um, a, a desire to, to do some research on I- Indigenous students' uh, experience in, in independent schools to see what we have learnt uh, from, from the experience of, of educating Indigenous students with particularly within boarding communities and what the future might hold in terms of being able to continue to to support uh, education of of our our Indigenous population. So there are a range of areas there that that I'd like to continue to be involved in in the next decade at least. Fantastic. And finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? how important education is for our society to to thrive and that that is the essence of education to me it's about equipping our young people to be independent and to be interdependent yes it's important that they're literate and they're they're numerate and digitally capable but above all else I think what is really important is it's about the individual having the capacity and having the confidence to to thrive and to shape and influence the future. I can see why you put Bryony Scott's quote on your wall, that purpose. Yes. (laughs) Purpose over how we might measure success in education. That's right. We've got a long way to go in terms of uh, really resolving what what we value and, and how we measure it. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.